Hello, everybody. My name's Tim Perko, and you're listening to I Believe. Now what? Hey, what's going on, everybody? I hope y'all are having a wonderful day out there. And today, well, first off, if you are new to the podcast, this is I Believe Now What. We are a podcast directed towards just the education and the building up of the body of Christ, the church. And we do different types of studies here. We do topical Bible studies. We do verse-by-verse Bible studies. And we also go outside the Bible a little bit and talk about events that shaped Christianity, which is what we're doing today as we are finishing up the last episode in our series, which is on uh, the Protestant Reformation. Now, in today's episode, as I said before, it is the last episode of this series, and we are going to go over how we got our denominations from the Reformation. Now, mind you, This is a huge topic, and so much of it is clouded, and it's based off of what other churches say. It's based off of history texts, and some of it gets clouded here and there. And it's very rare you can find somebody who agrees 100% on where we got our denominations from, who started it, how they started, and all this stuff. But I think this is an important topic to go over, and it was a key thing in the Reformation. All these denominations we got. If you've ever been through these denominations, uh, seen so many of them, why so many? Well, we're actually going to cover that in the next series, because the next series we are actually going over denominations. And while it would be great to talk about them all, that would be take up pretty much the rest of the year. We're going to hit up some of the major ones. But digressing, back to today's episode. We're specifically going to talk about how we got our denominations out of the Protestant Reformation. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and give you a little bit of an overview first on where these denominations sprung out from. Once again, this is all kind of contested, not 100%. Everybody has their own opinions and beliefs, but this is the information that I have gathered through personal experience, research, the internet, all that good stuff. So, without further ado, here we go. So, once the Protestant church broke away from the Catholic church, we started seeing the birth of many different beliefs and denominations. And people made these denominations based off their different confessions of faith that they had. Some people believed that you had to be baptized in order to be saved. Some people believed that you didn't have to be baptized in order to be saved. Some people believed in transubstantiation and the communion. Other people did not. There were so many different factors is what I'm getting at. Uh, that caused these separate denominations. And I'm going to try to do my best of going over where we got them from, when they started, who started them, and what they broke off from. So let me just lay a little bit of a background here. So different denominations came from opposing the Roman Catholic view where the interpretation of Scripture is carried out only by the Pope, his bishops, and the priests, and all that stuff. But Protestantism actually encourages the private interpretation of scripture or, you know, scripture being interpreted by the individual. This was a a direct result of this was so all the different denominations we got today. So many denominations. And those groups have emerged from the Reformation and each of them hold their own distinct doctrines. And, but here's something key to remember. They all, for the most part, they all refer to themselves as part of the, uh, invisible church, or in other words, the union of believers here on earth and in heaven, and that's known only to God. In other words, they're saying that, yes, we have different denominations, 
but we believe that we're all part of the body of Christ. We're all part of the one and only Church of Christ. We just have these different beliefs, so we broke off into different groups. So that way we aren't constantly arguing and bickering with each other. <laughs> That's uh, the bare basic essentials of it. There's also a lot of growing numbers of non-denominational churches. Yes, the denomination that is not a denomination. Uh, this term implies that they don't really have an alignment with any specific churches. While they might adhere to a lot of the doctrines of specific denominations, they don't really align themselves as part of those denominations. This is where it can get tricky because you have non-denominational churches that are more charismatic. Maybe they're more Pentecostal. Maybe they're more Baptist. Maybe they're Methodist. But they don't want to be governed by that controlling body. So they call themselves non-denominational churches. That's why if you're going to go to a non-denominational church, make sure you check out their doctrines. Go to a few services before you commit yourself to that church because it's uh, you don't know what you're going to get. It's kind of like reaching into a hat full of tickets. You don't know what ticket you're going to pull out when you walk in. So do your homework on it. So this term, uh, once again, non-denominational, don't really line up with an actual denomination. But one of the key staples with a non-denominational Protestant church is that they are in agreement most of the time with the five solas that we went over in episode two, the five solas of Protestantism. They agree with that. Uh, so they generally regard themselves as part of that bigger, overarching, you know, the full body of Christ church. Now, with that groundwork being said, uh, mainstream Protestant denominations, and this is really rough. This is not, uh, once again, so disputed. Uh, you can Google search, you know, how we got denominations from where and how they started and all that stuff, and you're going to find a plethora of things. I'm just gathered up as much information as I could, and I'm trying to use the most widely acceptable stuff here, but they can be roughly grouped into about nine different families. Now, I'm going to go ahead first off and give you a brief overview of those denominations and what they broke off from and how they broke into different denominations from their subgenres and all that stuff. Very brief overview, um, like a jet flyover. And then we're going to go into those nine key families and just kind of talk about them a little bit. Broad overview once again. And as I said earlier, this is going to lead up into our series, which is going to start after this one on denominations, where we get a little bit more in depth and hopefully uh, get some good interviews from people who belong to those denominations. So number one, we got the early church, okay? The early church started, we're going to say, you know, Book of Acts. Now, while many different churches broke off at that time and were created, the one huge one that most people will obviously know of is the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church, big, huge one. And from the Roman Catholic Church, mostly accredited to Martin Luther in 1517, you had the creation of Protestantism. There was also another kind of break off of the Catholic Church that they claimed they were not part of Protestantism, or maybe they were, but they weren't started from it. It was Anglicanism. Anglicanism is often viewed as a via media or middle way in between Protestantism and Catholicism. That's why it often gets disputed as an actual denomination. But we'll start with Protestantism. 
and we'll say the real spearhead of it once again, Martin Luther in 1517. So from Protestantism, you have a couple different groups that broke off. One was the Quakers, or otherwise known as the Society of Friends. That was started by George Fox in 1648. You also had Baptists break off from Protestants. Now that's actually disputed. Uh, I'm not sure what the dispute is there, and we're going to dig into that a little bit more, but it is disputed that Baptists broke off from Protestantism. I believe they think that they were around much longer before that. But Baptist, Baptist was started by, the Baptist denomination was started by John Smith in 1609. And from the Baptist denomination, you have the Southern Baptist Convention, which was another collective group of churches that broke off in 1845, because Baptist is a very, very broad term. From the Baptist denomination, the Adventists in the 1840s by a man named William Miller broke off from that church. That is also disputed. Uh, He believes he did not break off from Baptists, but Baptists say they did. Most people agree that they did. We'll leave it be. I want to keep this episode very factual, not opinion-based whatsoever. Now, from the Adventists, we got the Seventh-day Adventists, which broke off four years later in 1844. I'm sure you've heard of them. Uh, We'll go more into that once we actually start talking about them. Another group that broke off of mainstream Protestantism was the Anabaptists. Now, not Anti-Baptists, but Anabaptists. And that was started by Conrad Grable and Thomas Munzner in 1525. Breaking off of the Anabaptists was the Mennonites. I'm sure you've heard of them. And that was started by Mino Simmons in 1537. And then breaking off from the Mennonites, because they thought the Mennonites were too liberal, were the Amish. And that was started by Jacob Amen in 1693. Now, you have another group that broke off from Protestantism called the Reformed Theology, the Reformed Faith. And this was started by Ulrich Ulrich Zwilgini, who we talked about in the last episode, and John Calvin. And that was around 1520s, 1536, uh, depending on which one you're going to follow, either Ulrich or John. Now, what broke off from Reformed theology was the Presbyterians. That was started by John Knox in the 1560s, and what broke off of Presbyterianism is the Church of Scotland, which was also founded by John Knox in the 1560s. Now, the last group that broke off from Protestantism we'll talk about would be Martin Luther's own uh, church that his creators kind of started after the Diet of Worms in 1521, and that is Lutheranism. And from there, in 1988... You got Evangelical Lutheranism, which was started in the United States. Now, moving on to the Anglicanism, which if you remember us just talking about not too long ago, Anglicans are kind of viewed as that middle way, otherwise known as via media, between full-on Protestantism and the Catholic Church. They had a few different... uh, denominations that broke off of them as well. One was Congressionalism, which was started by Robert Brown in 1582. You also have the Methodists, which was started by John and Charles Wesley in 1738. Now, I'm sure most of you heard Methodists. Now, Methodists had a whole bunch of different churches break off of them. One was the Salvation Army. Yes, that is the denomination, actually, by William Booth in 1878. And another was the United Methodist Church in 1968. 
You also had the holiness churches break off of them in the 19th century onwards, which then started Pentecostalism in the early 20th century. And from Pentecostalism, you got the charismatic denominations that you see today. They would almost be, a lot of them are non-denominational, don't claim a domination, but they are a more charismatic church, uh, emphasizing things such as the spiritual gifts and whatnot. And you also uh, be remiss, I can't leave this one out. One other group that broke off from Anglicanism was the Episcopal Church, formed in America in 1607. Now, they actually had a full communion agreement in 1999 with the Evangelical Lutheran Church. Okay, so I hope none of that actually gave you a headache. And I know we went through that very kind of fast, very broad overview of how they broke off. But now we're going to actually get into what these different denominations believe in. And once again, this leads into our series we're doing next time on actual denominations. But I want to reiterate, this is a very broad overview of these denominations. We're not going to get into the willy-nilly of it, and I'm going to do my best to stay away from any opinions, and we're going to go straight into facts on what they call themselves and what widely accepted, uh, what they believe is what they believe, and all that good stuff. We're going to go in no random particular order. Uh, We're just going to go ahead and start. You know what? Let's do alphabetical order. I think that would be best. So first one on the list is the Anabaptists. Once again, not the Anti-Baptists, but the Anabaptists. Now, these churches, they came about during the Reformation era. And you would really find them in countries like Switzerland and the Netherlands. Now, a group of individual reformers disagreed with the baptism of infants as it was practiced in the Swiss uh, by the Swiss reformer Ulrich Zulgini, which we talked about in the last episode. Um, if so, if you want to get a little bit more information on him, we briefly went over him. And these groups called themselves the Anabaptists, or literally the rebaptizers. And they emphasized adult baptism. Mino Simmons was the guy who really emerged as that kind of, that leader for that church, this guy named Mino Simmons. And persecution led many of those followers actually to flee from those countries and into the United States and Canada, where they really flourish this day. Uh, There's over a million Mennonites worldwide, because remember we said Mennonites broke off from Uh, the Anabaptists, and then the Amish broke off from the Mennonites. There's over a million Mennonites worldwide, and many of them follow that confession that was made in 1632, the Dordic Confession. Now, a Swiss bishop named Jacob Amen, he led a movement to reform the church within the church, (laughs) and it resulted, honestly, in a schism. This is how we got the Amish. It was the new group of Mennonites, so so to speak. And many Amish immigrated to the United States and survive today in very tightly knit communities. They are really known for their rejection of modern lifestyles. Uh, they reject the use of cars, electricity, and other mon- modern conveniences. But all this is also governed by the church, mind you. Now, I have a little bit more I can talk about it because I actually grew up in, well, at least at the time, was the third largest Amish community in the United States. Uh, so I, I have a fairly decent amount of knowledge when it comes to Amish because I would interact with them almost daily. 
Now, like many Mennonites, the Amish, they are a very peace-loving people, and they absolutely reject all forms of violence. There were other Anabaptist groups that actually broke off that we didn't talk about when we went over our overview, and that was like the Hutterites, named after Jacob Hutter. But that's a really a, a much smaller group who really just reside mainly in North America today. And eh, I think that's about enough on that topic. We'll move on now to the Anglican Church. So the Anglican Church, they comprised of people who... Uh, follow those established customs and practices of the Church of England. If you know anything about the Church of England, that was the church that broke off of the Catholic Church because a particular king wanted to get a divorce, so he pretty much created his own religion, which was pretty much the same thing at the time as Catholicism, except the fact that you can divorce. There's other things that play into it, and it is different now than what it was. But uh, in some countries, especially in America, they're known as the Episcopal Churches, and that comes from the Greek word episkops, episkopos, which means bishop. And uh, yeah, I'm sorry, my, my Greek is not the best, but I do try. <laughs> well, there's actually an estimated around 70 million Anglicans worldwide. And all Anglican churches regard the Church of England as their actual mother church. And the Archbishop of Canterbury is known as that symbolic head over the church. He doesn't have any influence or he doesn't actually exert any influence outside of England itself. Uh, and his seat is honestly more so a seat of honor rather than jurisdiction, which you can see the differences there between them and the Catholics. Now, the history of Anglicanism as a separate denomination really began with the decision, once again, like I said earlier, by King Henry to overthrow the authority of the Roman Catholic Church in England, and that was because of a divorce that he wanted. The, the, the Pope Clement VII refused to grant authority for Henry to divorce his wife, Catherine of Aragon. And Henry carried through his demands by passing an act of supremacy in, 14, in sorry, 1534, making him the only supreme head in earth of the Church of England. The Church of England now remains as the official state church to this day of England with the monarch as its head. Ironically, in 1521, Henry VIII had actually written an article, and it's in Latin, so I'm not going to read the entire thing in Latin, but in English it's known as the Defense of the Seven Sacraments in, in response to the teachings of Martin Luther. Pope Leo X actually rewarded Henry with the title of defender of the faith because of his opposition to Martin Luther. And it's a title which appears on all British coins as FD to this day, because the Latin name for it is uh, Fide Defensor. Once again, I'm not fluent in Latin, so hopefully I didn't mess that one up. But the architect of Anglicanism was honestly a man named Thomas Kramer. Kramer. And he was the actual Archbishop of Canterbury underneath Henry VIII. Kramer pretty much came up with the Book of Common Prayer in 1559, and it was revised later on in 1662. Uh, and it had 39 articles that were written giving clear exposition of the Anglican theology in response to that of the Roman Catholic Church. So drawing that line of how we are separate from them um, but once again, like I said, it's viewed as kind of a via media or a middle way between Protestantism and Catholicism. 
Despite this move to a more Protestant position, it was clear that there was still a link between Anglicanism and Roman Catholicism. The break with the Catholic Church was not initially done over doctrine, but rather it would be seen as a power struggle between church and state. Remember, as I said, the Catholic Church had a lot of power then. And to this day, some Anglicans prefer to see the church as actually being both Catholic and Protestant at the same time. However, that works. Once again, using that word a via media or middle way between the two groups. Obviously, we've been going over what separates Catholics from Protestants for the most time. But in short summary, uh, the Catholic Church does claim apostolic succession, which was pretty much meaning that Jesus passed on his authority to Peter, Peter passed it on to the next pope, to the next pope, to the next pope, to the next pope, so forth and so on. While Protestants reject the universal authority of the pope and just wholeheartedly believe in Bible and the scripture. And that is our sole authority, and Christ is the one true head of the church. Now, from the 1830s onwards, a desire grew amongst Anglican clergy for a greater expression of the Catholic portions of their faith. So, an example, the use of liturgical vestments, incense, prayerful devotion to Mary was very highly encouraged in that time. This was also known as the Oxford Movement, so called to be many of its leaders were based there. Uh, chief amongst all those leaders was a man named John Henry Newman who famously wrote a series of articles known as the Tracts for the Times, outlining the view of the Church of England as that via media or middle way. And in Tract 90, published in 1841, Newman attempted to show that the 39 articles were not incompatible with Catholic belief and the misunderstandings of the Catholic doctrine in the articles could be resolved. Now, this led to a dispute and the Bishop of Oxford decided to forbid any further publication of these tracts. The negative response to Newman's work played a large part in his decision to join the Catholic Church. Eventually, Newman became the cardinal and continued to write theological works, including his theory of the development of doctrine, explaining how Catholic belief has developed over the centuries. The Oxford movement actually still continues to this day, and it's, it's a form of... Uh, Anglo-Catholicism, or what might be called a high church position, uh, as opposed to other Anglicans who favor a more Protestant theology, a high church versus low church, if you will. A mixture of these views coexists within the church. It's very torn. As an example of some except the seven Roman Catholic sacraments of baptism, Eucharist, confirmation, anointing of the sick, Penance, marriage, and holy orders, whereas others hold to only the first two in common traditional Protestantism. The bishops of the Anglican Communion meet every 10 years for what are known as the Lambeth Conferences, as the Archbishop of Canterbury resides in the Lambeth Palace, London. The first such conference was actually held in 1867, and in 1888 the conference passed the Lambeth quadrilateral giving a clear sense of Anglican identity. You know, they just sitting in limbo this whole time. They needed a sense of identity, and that's what they did. And they said in this quote here, that in the opinion of this conference, the following articles supply a basis on which approach may be by God's blessing made towards home reunion. Those were, number one, the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament containing all things necessary to salvation as being the rule and ultimate standard of faith. Number two, the Nicene Creed as the sufficient statement of the Christian faith. 
Number three, the two sacraments ordained by Christ himself, baptism and the supper of the Lord or the Lord's table, ministered with unfailing use of Christ's words of institution and the elements ordained by him. Number four, the historical episcopate located in adopted methods of its administration to the varying needs of the nation and peoples called of God into the unity of his church. Now, the Anglican Church has been active in ecumenical movements, especially in its relations with the Roman Catholic Church. Following historic meetings in 1965 between the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Pope, the Anglican Roman Catholic International Commission was set up to undertake theological dialogue between those two churches. Now, if you're wondering where I got all those facts and if you're wondering if I know a lot about it, I really didn't. I had to pretty much do a lot of reading and research on it because I didn't know much about Anglicans. And I got most of my resources off of a website that I've been using for a lot of this called uh, Protestantism.org. So if you're curious about it, Protestantism.uk.org. So if you're curious uh, to go ahead and read that yourself, you can find it on that website. Now, we're going to go ahead and move into the Baptists. All right. So the Baptists. The first Baptist church was founded in Amsterdam in 1609 by a man named John Smith. Baptist churches are unique in that they emphasize a baptism based on a confession of faith, otherwise known as the believer's baptism. This uh, believer's baptism essentially meaning that the Holy Spirit, the moment you believe, the moment you confess faith in Christ, the moment you believe, however it works, uh, and you become a true believer, you are baptized by the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's a different baptism of the Holy Spirit than what the Pentecostals believe. We'll get into that later. But this believer's baptism was the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it pretty much was what set you in the kingdom. They also believed full immersion baptism in water rather than sprinkling. And this wasn't a saving baptism, but more so a symbolic baptism uh, that that you're confessing, that you're the faith. And they definitely did not adhere to sprinkling, which was what the Catholic Church and other denominations did to infants. They sprinkled baptism, you know, and they, they didn't see the point in that because they little babies can't make a profession of faith. Now, infants may not be baptized, but they are dedicated to Christ in a ceremony that Baptists often hold. Uh, Once the child is old enough then to profess faith clearly, then they can be baptized into full membership of that denomination. There are over 40 million Baptists worldwide, including over 30 million in the United States. And most Baptist congressions, uh, they're totally independent of each other. This is a key thing with Baptists. There's not one governing body over all the Baptists. They are almost in a sense like non-denominational groups. One Baptist church might be a Southern Baptist church. One Baptist church might be a full gospel Baptist church. Another one might just be one that holds to the five solas. But they're, they're, they're so vastly different. So it's, it's kind of hard to tell what you're going to get when you go into one unless you actually read their statement of face and go to a couple services. One of those organizations I just mentioned was the Southern Baptist Convention in America. 
which right now, if you know, is going through some controversy, getting very liberal and some stuff. And instead of calling themselves Southern Baptists, they're calling themselves Full Commission Baptists or uh, something like that. Ah, craziness. Uh, but each congregation has, I'm not saying craziness as in the denomination, it's just all this talk about being politically correct and all this stuff. Anyways, moving on. Each congregation of Baptists actually has total autonomy in matters of church doctrine and discipline, and church meetings are held on a very, very regular basis to deal with these issues. Baptists are some of the best, I think, when it comes to stuff like church discipline and stuff, because they have elders, they have the pastor, they have a governing body within the church that deal with these very specific things. This independence had led to very differing views on such issues like Calvinism and Arminianism. Uh, We'll get on to that when we start talking about Reformed or Presbyterian churches and whatnot. Uh, And also female ordination, which for the most part is frowned upon in the Baptist church. Baptists practice two sacraments known as ordinances. They have baptism and they have communion or the Lord's table. Their view of communion is known as memorialism. Now, this is what most Protestants hold true as the bread and the wine are only symbols of Christ's body and blood, not the literal body and blood of Christ. Baptist churches are typically led by a pastor, or in Latin, the word shepherd, who is assisted by deacons in ministry. One of the most famous Baptists of the 20th century was Martin Luther King, and he was a great American civil rights leader. Now, the next one we're going to go over, congressionals. Don't worry, I don't have a whole bunch on them. It was kind of hard to find some stuff, but congressional churches are those that emphasize the autonomy of each individual church in its governing affairs. Now, Robert Brown was the man who founded the first church based on congressional principles in 1582 after dissatisfaction with the Church of England. goes back to that Anglicanism. This desire for complete separation from the Church of England led to some congressionalists to actually leave England as part of the Pilgrim Fathers who sailed for America in the 1620s. Now, in 1972, many congressionalist churches in England and Wales merged with the Presbyterian Church in England, forming the United Reformed Church. Next, we go into Lutherans. And once again, I had to use uh, outside resources to really dig into Lutherans because besides a few basic facts, I didn't know much about them. Lutheran churches pretty much define themselves in the Osberg Confession of 1530, known as the Assembly of Believers among which the gospel is preached and holy sacraments are administered according to the gospel. Some people joke around and call this Catholic light. Because once again, Luther never designed to break away from the Catholic Church, but rather reform it from the inside. So many Catholic beliefs and traditions got carried over into the Lutheran Church. There's estimated over 80 million Lutherans worldwide with a significant number in Germany, Scandinavia, Denmark, Sweden, and in America. So following Martin Luther's break with the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the doctrines of sola scriptura and salvation by grace through faith alone became key tenets of his belief system. Lutherans affirm that there are two sacraments. One, the baptism, and two, Holy Communion, or known in the Catholic Church as the Eucharist. 
regarding that Eucharist, the the Lutherans have a, a very slight difference uh, in their beliefs when it comes to communion. Lutheran believe that uh, Christ is truly present in the bread and wine, which is much different than many other Protestant beliefs. But this this is the key difference here. But this mode of presence is in, with, and under the elements. That's what they say. This is known as consubstantiation. That's in contrast to the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, which once again is affirming that the bread and wine change completely into Christ's body and blood, which is totally unbiblical. <laughs> Luther himself explained this by using an analogy of an iron rod placed into a fire. Both are united in red hot iron, yet both are also distinct. So in other words, he's saying it's the same, but it's not the same. Mm, go figure. Now, in the 17th century in Germany, a movement with Lutheranism developed emphasizing individual conversion. Detailed study of the Bible and a more active role for the uh, lady in the government of the church, pious ideas did not meet with the universal support. But later times, they were actually, uh, they were to exert a significant influence on someone known as John Wesley and the Methodist movement, which we're actually going to get into next. But continuing on with Lutherans, just for a little bit more, one of the most famous Lutherans of recent times was actually a man named Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor who died as a martyr during World War II. In 1999, representatives of the Lutheran and Roman Catholic Church actually signed a joint declaration on the doctrine of justification, which meant that they are now able to articulate a common understanding, and I'm quoting here, now able to articulate a common understanding of our justification by God's grace through faith in Christ. It does not cover all that either church teaches about justification. It does not it does, though, encompass a consensus on basic truths of doctrine of justification. In 2006, this declaration was also approved by the World Methodist Council, which we're going to get into next as we move into the Methodists. Now, the Methodists, uh, th their story really begins with the Wesley family. All right, you got John Wesley and Charles Wesley, two brothers that were born in the early 1700s. And they were born in the village known as Epworth in Lincolnshire. Now, their parents, uh, one was a rector and the other one was a known as a very remarkable woman who spent much of her time in prayer for her family. And in 1709, there was a very serious fire. Uh, and John Wesley, the son, nearly perished. His mother believed that he had been rescued by God for a very special purpose uh, which is quoted by her as saying, a brand plucked from the burning. Now, in the 1720s, the Wesley brothers founded a fellowship at Oxford University. Now, here people could commit themselves to prayer and Bible study. The group soon attracted the attention of other students, not all of whom were in favor of this new way of worshiping God. And various labels for the fellowship were given, including the Holy Club, but it was ultimately came down to the term Methodist that stuck. Both John and Charles became ordained ministers within that Church of England. Once again, Methodist broke off from the Anglican Church. 
and what might be called the Evangelical Revival, which began on 24 May 1738. Now, John was present at a meeting on Aldersgate Street in London, where as he put it, and I'm quoting, my heart was strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. His brother had also gone a similar experience around the same time, and the stage was now set for both brothers to really bring the good news to the masses. On 11 June 1738 in Oxford, John proclaimed that the whole world is my parish, and Charles himself set out preaching and teaching. Now, what was you know very distinctive was their actual method. Open-air meetings designed to attract many people— and irrespective of class. So in other words, uh, it was held out in the open, open air, not in the confines of a church building. And they didn't care if you were rich or poor or what race you were or anything like that. They didn't care. It was just to get the word out there. John Wesley may have traveled over 250,000 miles, they assume, and preached over 40,000 sermons during his lifetime, which is honestly a very remarkable achievement. As Methodism grew... As a movement within the Church of England, it became necessary to look at it in ways in which it might actually be governed. John Wesley actually favored something known as a connectual, which meant that local churches were organized into circuits so that preachers can travel from one church to another as opposed to having just one head pastor. Circuit plans were actually drawn up for each minister in this system, and it continues on to this present day. Each church makes up a distinct and uh, or I'm not distinct, sorry. Each church makes up a district and its representatives from each district attend an annual conference. Now, in 1784, John Wesley actually encouraged the development of Methodism in the United States and beyond. Today, Methodist churches are found all over the world. Church membership in the UK is about 250,000 and about 70 million people worldwide have some form of a link to the Methodist church. Source there is the Methodist website. Uh, Charles Wesley, as well, being a preacher, gave Methodism uh, or Methodist theology a wonderful legacy in his hymn writing. He actually wrote a lot of hymns, about 5,000 of them, during his lifetime, including some famous ones that we all know, like Hark the Herald Angels Sing and uh, Love Divine, All Love Excelling. In 1795, the Methodist movement actually seceded from the Church of England and became its own separate Protestant denomination. However, the two groups have always had very strong links, and in 2003, they had a joint covenant that was signed to explore different ways of working together. Now, the basic theology of Methodism or Methodist theology is known as Arminianism. This comes from a man named uh, Jacob Arminius. And if you go back, oh, I don't know how many episodes, I actually did an episode where I talked about the differences between Calvinism and Arminianism. Uh, you can go back and check that out a little bit more in depth. But Jacob Arminius, he was a man who questioned a lot of the doctrines that were held by John Calvin. 
Arminius emphasized the free will of the individual to follow or reject Christ and the possibility of one losing their salvation rather than uh, eternally saved or perseverance of the saints. This was reaction to John Calvin's doctrine of predestination by which God determines the individual's final destiny, whether it would be to eternal life or eternal damnation. Uh, mind you, not all Calvinists hold to every single part of Calvin's theology, just as all Arminians hold to Arminius theology. Uh, sometimes they intermix. But Arminianism rejects, for the most part, if you call yourself a 100% true Arminius, just like if you called yourself a 100% true Calvinist, you would reject all five points of Calvinism. Sometimes people do, like I said, though, with the exception of total depravity. That's usually the most accepted in between the two. The exception to the Arminian view is held uh, by Methodists in Wales, who tend to be more Calvinist in their doctrine, but that's a different story for a different time. Um, Methodists have a lot of characteristics, obviously, with mainstream Protestants, uh, Protestants when it comes to the sacraments. They hold to only two, baptism and Holy Communion, which is otherwise known as the Lord's Supper. Uh, once again, if you want to understand more about the five points of Calvinism, uh, we're going to get into it a little bit more, uh, but I have an entire five episodes dedicated on that if you want to go back and look. But back on the Methodist church, Wesley also taught a doctrine called the doctrine of holiness. And this is sometimes known as the entire sanctification, or I think better known today as the second work of grace. Now, this is an idea, this idea here, it's a form of Christian perfection, and it occurs sometime after conversion and stripping away all the guilt of original sin. And the believer is equipped with a pure heart free of sinful thoughts and motives. Now, Wesley had... Uh, a view pretty much basically what I described, but it would come after much work and studying and praying and sanctification before you would achieve that. And myself personally, I don't agree with that assessment, but some people today grabbed a hold of that and they call it sinless perfection, uh, where they believe it, you can attain this almost instantly where you are free 100% of sin. You'll never sin again in your life. Uh, and that twisted Wesley's view of the second work of grace, which once again, I don't, I personally do not affirm either of those, but especially that second one. Now, Methodist teaching is often summed up in really four particular ideas, and they are known as the four alls. All need to be saved, which is based off the doctrine of original sin. All can be saved, universal salvation. All can know they are saved, having assurance, and all can be saved completely, being Christian perfection, which is kind of what we talked about. Uh, in 1865, an independent Methodist minister named William Booth actually founded the Salvation Army, which to this day carries out evangelistic and social works across the globe. And yes, it is often considered as its own denomination. William Booth wrote this. He said, I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to whatever thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. 
Let me be employed for thee, or lay aside for thee, exalted for thee, or brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartedly yield to all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine, and I am thine. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. This Wesleyan prayer is used in the book of offices at the British Methodist Church. Just a little side note there. All right, I think that's a lot about the uh, Methodists there. Now moving on to the Quakers. All right, the founder of the Quakers was a man named George Fox. And although he was born, born into an Anglican household, Fox developed his own form of distinct Christian teaching, developing the idea of the inner light or a sense of God's presence, which could be cultivated often through periods of silence. Fox called it Christ within. Now, Fox was charged with blasphemy, actually, in 1650. In his trial, he asked, to, he asked the judge to tremble at the word of the Lord. The judge's less than charitable reply was to call Fox and his followers Quakers. The name stuck, but officially the organization is actually known as the Religious Society of Friends, following the words of Jesus, You are my friends if you do whatever I command you, in John 15, 14. As a result of the idea of the inner light, Quakerism has the following distinctive beliefs. They reject ordinated clergy and sacraments, which access to God is available immediately for each individual, they say. Rejection of creeds and all set uh, forms of worship. Quakers are also pacifists and aim to live a life of quiet simplicity. Truth and sincerity are vital concepts for them. Their meetings are often conducted in silence until one person is moved by the Holy Spirit may speak. Quakers are active in social work and educated, uh, uh, and they have gained much admiration for their dedication and hard work in these areas. Uh, There's over 300,000 Quakers worldwide with significant numbers in England and in the United States. William Penn, a Quaker immigrant to the United States, actually founded uh, Pennsylvania in 1682. Now, moving on to Pentecostals. And yes, I know I said I was going to go in alphabetical order, but I mixed up all my notes. So (laughs) we're just going to go ahead and go with this. All right, Pentecostals. Now, as their name implies, the Pentecostal churches lay particular emphasis on the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the Greek known as charismata. Now, that they believe is manifested in the life of the individual. Uh, The roots of Pentecostalism lie in the holiest movement, which the holiness movement, sorry, uh, as a form of empowerment for the Christian through the Holy Spirit, which, for example, was developed by John Wesley Wesley in Methodism. Uh, So, like I said, Pentecostals broke off from the Methodist church and then Charismatics broke off from the Pentecostal church. And you, you see how it goes on. In Acts 2, we find reference to the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Paul explains the gifts of the Spirit in his letter to the Corinthians church. And this is what they, they, they generally believe on. 1 Corinthians 12, uh, verses 4 through 11. Now there are diversities of gift, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God in which worketh in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man 
to profit withal. For one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge, by the same Spirit, to another faith, by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing, by the same Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, and another the interpretation of tongues. But to all these worketh that one and self same Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. Once again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 11. Now, estimates do vary, but there are, shoot, they think around 100 million Pentecostals worldwide. And the movement is very strong in poor countries. And this is probably, honestly, the fastest form of Christianity that's growing today. An example uh, 1940, there are around 40,000 Protestants in Guatemala. And by 1997, this number had risen to 2,075,000. Many of them are Pentecostals. And you can reference that source at adherence.com. Perhaps the most visible form of Pentecostal belief is the what they believe in the gift of speaking in tongues, which many Pentecostal believers exercise. We find scriptural proof of this in Acts chapter 2, where it says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, speaking in tongues is by no means confined to Pentecostals. And in recent times, Christians of all denominations have been claiming to witness this gift. And in the Roman Catholic Church, for example, it forms part of the charismatic renewal movement. So some Protestant churches have speaking in tongues as a regular part of their worship. And we'll actually discuss that more so later on in Protest as we get into what Protestantism is like today. Now, the whole speaking in tongues thing is honestly a very debated topic when it comes to what actually tongues is. Some will say based off of scripture, speaking in tongues is a real word language, like it says in Acts chapter 2. And then others will quote parts of Corinthians saying tongues is a secret prayer language uh, for you to God. Uh, I went into a few episodes, I think, on that. If you want to go back to what is speaking in tongues, I'm not sure what the exact name of the episode was, but something about like speaking in tongues was in there. So if you want to learn more about that and what my personal beliefs are, by all means, please go over there and listen to that uh, on this channel. Now, back on Pentecostalism and tongues, evidence, this is kind of key right here, evidence of speaking in tongues is taken as proof, though not the only one, uh, that one has received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this also varies from denomination to denomination within the Pentecostal groups. But this is a known as a second baptism, uh, a distinct, different baptism from the one might have one might have received as an infant, for example, uh, or the one where you were baptized into believing. It's a function it, it hmm, how do I put it? its function is an act, as a work of sanctification, drawing a person into deeper relationship with Christ Jesus and enabling them to serve him more efficiently through this speaking in tongues. Although there were roots of Pentecostal movements and the holiness theology of John Wesley and others, 
modern Pentecostalism actually dates from 1901. And I can already tell one of my buddies who's a Pentecostal is probably screaming right now. He's like, no, it started earlier. But uh, this is what's widely believed. So when a lady named uh, Agnes Osmond received the gift of speaking in tongues during a prayer meeting, uh, 1906 was another big time. And this was at the Azusa Street Mission in Los Angeles. A revival broke out there and it lasted all the way to 1909. Members of that mission all received the gift of speaking in tongues. And Christians from around the globe started visiting and studying uh, the revival, so their ideas were quickly spread around. Uh, the influence of Pentecostalism in the modern Christian scene is so immense right now. Uh, some view it as a fourth strand of Christianity, though, alongside Roman Catholicism, Orthodoxy, and Protestantism, because of just how vast and different some of these beliefs are. And many modern evangelists are actually Pentecostals, and the church has played a significant part in shaping Christianity in recent times. Once again, it's a very, when you say Pentecostalism, it gets very messy because there are so many different denominations that broke off of Pentecostals, such as the holiness churches and charismatic churches. And they all, some are very extreme, others are not so extreme. Uh, you really have to read up on it and get the idea for yourself. Now, we're going to go into another broad topic, which is Reformed denominations, and specifically mostly Presbyterian, but we'll talk about a few others. The Reformed churches uh, generally hold to the ideas and I, I, I can speak a little bit more into this because I do consider myself part of Reformed theology, a uh, Reformed denomination, I guess you could say. I'm not Presbyterian, but I do hold to a Reformed theology. But these churches generally hold to the ideas that were held by Ulrich Zwicky and John Calvin. Now, in contrast to the Lutheran doctrine of electing a hierarchy of bishops uh, to govern the church, the Reformed churches actually go to elect elders, which is presbytery in the Greek, to carry out this function. Presbytery, by the way, is where you get the word Presbyterian from. The elders work together as a group, but they are accountable to higher groups known as presbyteries or synods or, more commonly, assemblies. Now, one of the things that most Reformed and Presbyterian churches do hold true in and agreeance is the five points of Calvinism. Now, not all agree on every point, but for the most part, there's a general consensus that they agree on the five points of Calvinism. Once again, if you want to know more about it, go check out the episode I did on it. But here's a little brief overview. The, the points are often summarized by the word tulip. And the first letter of each is the point. So T is total depravity of man. That means man's nature is totally fallen and needs the grace of God and the, whole, and the work of the Holy Spirit working in him, otherwise known as regeneration, before he can find faith. Number two, unconditional election. That is, uh, election is the act of God choosing an individual. His choice is based not on any foreseen merit in a man, but rather comes from his own mercy. Then you have limited atonement. Christ's death was effective in removing only the sins of those who were chosen by him, the elect, and not for all of mankind. This is also known as particular redemption. And this is also the one that most 
four-point Calvinists will disagree on, citing that Christ, it, it's the Bible says Christ died for the sins of the world, not just the elect. But there's so much more that gets into it, and I talk about it in an episode I did on limited atonement. Please go check it out if you want to hear more in depth on it. Number four, though, is irresistible grace. That's the eye and tulip. And it is the call of the Holy Spirit in bringing a person to conversion that uh, they cannot be, they cannot reject it. When the Holy Spirit calls, they cannot reject it. God's grace given freely will always result in salvation. It's impossible to reject. You're so convinced of it. And then number five, perseverance of the saints. This one is... Uh, along with total depravity, one of the more held doctrines by a lot of different denominations. It says, those who are chosen by God will continue in faith until the end. Those who fall away never actually had true faith to begin with. In other words, once you're saved, you're always saved, and you're going to keep growing in that saving faith. Now, following the Reformation, several catechisms were drawn up, uh, catechisms, sorry, were drawn up, including the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563, which remains influential today in Reformed churches. And some extracts are actually given below. One of the questions was, uh, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer would be that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also perseveres me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not an hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also measures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Another question that was posed there was, why are you called a Christian? And their answer was, because I am a member of Christ by faith, and thus share in his anointing, so that I may, as prophet, confess his name, as priest, present myself as a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him, and as king, fight with a free and good conscience against sin and the devil in this life and hereafter reign with him eternally over all creatures. Uh, if you want to read more into that, once again, check out the Heidelberg Catechism. Also of importance within Presbyterianism is the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, which was devised in 1646. And this is one just personal thing here that I hold very dearly to. And this was devised in 1646, like I said, which is widely used, especially within the Church of Scotland, whose identity was shaped by John Knox, who led the Protestant Reformation in Scotland. And if you want to read more on it, just Google the Westminster Confession of Faith. You can get it in a PDF document and read it. Now, obviously, there are many other denominations that we did not cover that we can go very in-depth on. Uh, but we're going to go ahead and refrain from that because I think this episode is long enough as it is. And I do need to save some for our denomination series that's going to be coming up here. Uh, I still got a lot more research I need to do into it. And I'm hoping to find more and more people that are willing to come up and talk about their denominations, leaders in those 
denominations. So by means, if you are listening and you are a leader in any denomination, just go ahead and please message me. Hit me up on Facebook Messenger. Hit me up on Twitter. Uh, whatever you want to do. If you want to be on the show, I would be love to have you on here and we can talk about this and really just get a broad view understanding. It's not going to be an argument or a debate or anything like that, but more so we just talk about these different denominations. Anyways, this episode was long. If you stuck with it, thank you so much. I appreciate you guys listening. Once again, I don't make any money off this. I do this completely just because I want to grow the body of Christ. I want people to be educated. Um, and I really enjoy it. I really do. So thank you once again for listening. I hope you all have a wonderful one. And this closes out our series on the Reformation. You all have a good one. This is Tim with I Believe Now What? Signing out. Oh, and one last thing before we close out. If you want to know where I got a lot of this information from, like I said, it was on various websites, studies, sermons, uh, um, especially from Westminster Confession of uh, Seminary, almost like Confession of Faith, and a high, high, big thank you to the website protestantism.co.uk because they... Uh, really compiled an amazing list and most of the stuff that I read from these denominations because I did not have background information on it came from them so please go check out that website Uh, thank you so much once again y'all have a great one out out